Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of For What It's Worth podcast. We have an unbelievable episode this week, even if I do say so my damn self. But before we begin, I just experienced something horrific that's really chapped my ass, and I've got to bring it up. For any of you who are listening to this podcast, if you have Instagram on your phone, do me a favor and just delete it right now, because Instagram is turning our culture and society into the biggest bunch of morons I've ever seen in my life. I'm in the mountains of northern New Mexico right now, and I made the fatal mistake of trying to go into the mountains, forgetting that it was the peak of fall colors. And I just experienced something that was so horrific and so maddening and so stupid and selfish and greedy that I just had to say something. Instagrammers by the thousands blocking the roads, leaving their trash, leaving their cars parked in the road, stopping in the road without looking behind them, and standing and posing in the road, causing traffic jams in both directions. I simply cannot believe that we have gotten to this point. And I think if anybody out there is still on Instagram, especially after we know now with certainty what the parent company has been up to for the last four years at least, and what the parent company continues to do, which is Facebook, This is not a company who's doing you a favor or me a favor or us a favor. This is not a company that's helping the culture. It's it's leading us in a direction that has done nothing but polarize who we are and drive divisions between people and and basically further things like post-truth culture where people invent narratives and then follow those narratives as if they were fact. So if you can delete your Instagram and your Facebook off your phone, I think all of us would be better as a collective. Okay, so... Let's move on. I've got a, I want to start out the same way I always do with a hero. But this week, we've got, we've got a hero that I think you're going to dig. I've got a camera question for you. I've got a YouTube question for you. I want to talk a little bit about re-gearing my Toyota because I know everyone is so uh, interested in that. I also want to talk about, again, the idea of going from being an amateur photographer to a pro and why I think that is such a horrible idea uh, right now. And we're also going to talk a little bit about politics, and I'm going to do that first. Because I know that some of the sensitive types out there will hear that and just flee. Because a lot of people don't want to hear anything that goes against their political view because they'd rather just turn, turn and run away. And I, I get that. So I just want to say this. So let's start with our hero and then I'll go into the politics thing. The hero this week is based on an experience I had in Seattle last week, which was really profound to me because it hadn't happened in a long time. I was at a gallery opening, a private showing, if you will, uh, of a friend who had this really remarkable uh, exhibition about her photography collection and the books that she's published. And she's worked at Chronicle and Aperture and has her own imprint and is a just powerhouse in the publishing world and a really interesting, cool person. And she's also collected photographs from a lot of the people that she's worked with, so she has a remarkable print collection. Like, I have a decent print collection, but when I look at her print collection, I'm like, oh, my God, this is a real collection. And so she had an exhibition uh, in this, in this uh, gallery. And dead center in the middle of the gallery of her exhibition space was a picture by a photographer named Gene Richards. And if you don't know Gene Richards and you're interested in documentary photography, I don't know where you've been for the last 35 or 40 years. But Gene Richards is one of the premier photographers of, in my, my lifetime in the modern era of photography. He's primarily a black and white documentary photographer. And when I was coming up in photography, his name was everywhere. I mean, you could not avoid Gene Richards. He was just, you know, prolific. And everything he did was like, wow, made you stop and and kind of, you know, doubt yourself as a photographer. And so my friend had a print of his. 
and it was an image from 9-11 that I had never seen before. Now, you might have seen this image and know exactly what I'm talking about, but it is very, very rare for me these days to see an image that stops me in my tracks, an image that made me feel the exact same way I felt when I got into photography way back in the late 80s when I saw a picture by an English photographer named Larry Burroughs from the Vietnam War, which was a, which was a two Marines embracing on a hilltop. It was a color image, and Burroughs was really known for, for black and white, but did shoot some color, and it was a picture of a white Marine embracing an African-American Marine. And I was young, and I saw that picture, and I had never seen anything that made me feel that way before. And I, it, I said, I want to make people feel that way. And that's why I became a photographer. So this had not happened to me for a long time. That 99% of the photography I see, more than that, 99.9% .9 of all the photography I see put in front of me is not good. It's okay. It's, most of it is content. Most of it is a copy of a copy of a copy that someone saw someone else do and have social media success, and so they went out and copied it, right? It's rare for me to see projects that I go, wow, this is completely new. That's why I reserve the word great for these people and these projects. I don't use great a whole lot. And I certainly would never use it with my, with my own work. I would wait for someone else to label that. But I saw this picture in this gallery by Gene Richards. And it was a lone fireman sitting on the top of a pile of rubble. The photographer is above the fireman. It's a landscape aspect ratio. There's an earth mover on the left that you see the bucket, the open bucket. And there is an earth mover in the background at lower elevation. And you see the treads. And this lone fireman is alone. And what's amazing about it is the composition, the print, which was a silver print, was so beautifully printed. And to see a silver print with this kind of shadow detail and tonal range and absolute perfection print in my mind, master print. And the moment, so you had the movement of the buckets, you had the dust, and you had the gesture of this fireman. It was, it was a 10 out of 10. It was a five star. It was the cat five of documentary photographic images. Now, apparently it ran in like Time Magazine, but it did not get as much play as a lot of the other images that were associated with this event. But my hero this week is Gene Richards, because if you can make a single image of that, like that in your lifetime, you are a damn good photographer. And Gene Richards has a lot more than one of these. But I was just so stunned and stopped. And I told my friend, I said, I am feeling a little uncomfortable right now because I haven't felt this way about a photograph in a long, long time. So the hero is Gene Richards. That was point number one. Point number two is about our, poli our current political situation. And uh, before we go any further, I just want to say this. Um, our system is completely and utterly broken. The only people that I can find who are not in agreement are those who are Republicans who think that because they're in control right now that, you know, everything is good. Because they're they're maximizing profit until the music stops, right? So they're, which I, if I was in their shoes and I was a Republican doing that, I'd probably be doing the same thing. But our system is broken. It doesn't work the way it was originally intended. And instead of as a collective, as a culture of getting together level-headedly and saying, look, we need to make changes here. You know, maybe we should have more than two parties. Maybe we should limit campaign finance. Maybe we should get rid of dark money. All these different things that we've, that we've figured out ways not to do. But I just want to say from the beginning... I, I took my first political test when I was in high school, which was a test to determine where you leaned as a voter, Republican, Democrat, Independent. And I've taken these tests multiple times throughout my adult life, some more comprehensive than others. Some took three hours. And I love stuff like this. I also took tests about what I should do for a living when I was in high school and college, and I found those interesting. And some of those were longer than three hours. And the results of that, if I ever 
remember to share them with you are pretty funny. Uh, the results basically drove my father to almost drive he and I off the road on purpose. But uh, anyway, that's another story. So every time I've taken a political test, I've come out as an independent voter. What that means is I hate both sides equally. Now, I've had friends that looked at me and said, oh, if you're an independent voter, that's a cop-out. You know, you have to take sides. I don't see it that way at all. I look at it as being a realist position on politics. So the Republicans, to me, um, have just gone off the rails in a huge way, and I know why. It's because of the current president, and they've hitched their wagon to this guy, and, and no one knows where he's going, um, and he's been a con man for 40 years. That was all public record before he even became president. But I can also look at the Democrats and this whole Hunter Biden thing and say, boy, the other Democrats have been pretty quiet, huh? You know why? Because their kids are probably doing it too. Because the corruption runs deep on both sides of the aisle. If you look at, at uh, indictments across the country of Democratic candidates and Republican candidates, it is rife on both sides. This is a, these are both in some ways, and I know this sounds dramatic, but they are criminal organizations. They're, they're white-collar criminal organizations that have figured out loopholes in the law. They've figured out ways to enrich themselves at the expense of the American people. And the American people are asleep, and we're distracted, right? We're, we don't have a great education system, so we're, as a whole, kind of poorly educated. We're distracted with technology and television and Hollywood. And a lot of us don't even know much about our immediate surroundings, you know? And I'll throw myself in that in that category. You know, I mean, I have a decent education um, and I live in a place that I am absolutely fascinated by. And I, I might know, let's say, a little more than the average person, but I mean, certainly I don't know everything. I'm, I live in an incredibly complex area, but that's on me. That's my fault. I have to know what's happening. And so I look at, at what's happening now and I see an opportunity, right? Here's my point that I'm getting to. So the first point was our hero. The second point is this. I tested as a independent. So don't think I'm coming, you know, from some one slant from one side or the other. But I think the Republicans have an unbelievable opportunity right now. I don't think it'll ever happen. But I'm see, I see the long play and not the short play. And, and my point is the Republicans have an opportunity, if the Republicans threw Donald Trump under the bus right now and said, you know what, this guy, obviously, he's been a con man his whole adult life. He's done this. He's, you know, look at his cabinet, look at what he's doing, his policies. You know, there's a lot of really nasty stuff that's going on in the background. He does not stand for what our party stands for. Therefore, we are not going to put him on the ticket. We're going to put somebody else out. And long term, I think short term, his Trump's base would freak out. And I think all of the Republican leadership is paranoid and t petrified of Trump's base because they're crazy. But I think in the long run, it gives them a much better standing because at some point the music is going to stop with Trump. And when the wheels come off of that train, it is going to be unlike anything we have ever seen before. Now, here's my, my, my thoughts on this. I think Trump ran on the Republican ticket for a multitude of reasons. One, the Democrats, he would have never made, made the nomination. People would have laughed him out of the room. I think he ran on the Republican ticket for three reasons. One, he knew he could con their base, which he has really well for three and a half years. He also knew the Republicans had nobody to beat him, nobody. And they realized that very quickly. If you go back to some of those very first debates when everybody still thought that Trump, there was no way in hell he was ever going to get the nomination, you could see the looks on their faces immediately after. When Trump said to 
whatever her name was on Fox News. She's no longer on Fox News anymore, but she was moderating one of these one of these events. I can't remember her name. And he said to her, basically, he said something about her being on her period without saying those exact words and because she was asking him tough questions. When he didn't get the boot after that, I knew he won. I, I knew it was just a matter of time before he had stomped everybody else because that set the tone for what was allowable. And he's gone so far above and beyond that. Every week, he does more and more and more to make the crazy seem like it's normal. But so he knew he could con their base. He knew they didn't have anyone to beat him. And he knew the Republican establishment was corrupt enough to get behind him. And they've proven that for three and a half years. That's not my opinion. We know that with certainty. All you have to do is look at Trump's cabinet, the Ryan Zinkies, the Scott Pruins, the Ben Carsons, the Betsy DeVos. It goes on and on and on. All of these, you know, not to mention his Michael Cohen and all these other things. But at some point, the repubs could really come out of this on top if they say, look, this isn't going to go on forever, and when the wheels come off, it's going to be really bad. And so if they threw him under now, I think in the long run, they're going to come out of it much better than they are. But like the Republicans ain't listening to me. They probably, you know, no one should listen to me, but you should know that by now. And the last thing I'm going to say about politics is that, you know, the Trump experiment has been terrifying and fascinating at the same time. And I've said from day one, we totally deserve it. The fact that we elected him, we deserve to melt down. We deserve to have our culture crumble. We deserve to financially go in the tank. We deserve everything that's coming to us because we elected this guy. But there's two groups who are in his camp that are mystifying to me. And the first are people who are vehemently anti-Trump who will say to me, and I've had this happen multiple times, I've said, how could you possibly support this person? And they say, well, yeah, he's a racist, and he's a sexist, and he lies, and he's horrible, but I'm making money. Those people are mystifying to me, and kind of like soulless, but that's another story. And the second group is probably the most mystifying thing of all, because I know people in this group. I know someone who is one of the single largest donors to the Trump campaign, who is also a fervent Christian. And the evangelicals are a group that I am just so baffled by. To me, they have absolutely no credibility whatsoever anymore because, you know, these people coming out saying it's our moral obligation to vote for Trump and, you know, they want him to overturn Roe v. Wade. So they don't care what he does, what he says, or how horrible he is if they pass legislation that overturns Roe v. Wade. And I'm just mystified because, like I said, I know some of these people personally and they have so many holes in their story. It's just mind boggling and how they've mentally rationalized going through life that way. So anyway, it's an interesting time. Again, I'm, I'm expecting things to get a lot worse before they get better. I'm saving my money, and uh, I'm keeping my eyes open. That's all I can say. Okay, point number three is in a totally different direction. It's about Saturn. And no, not the planet Saturn. I don't know anything about Saturn other than that it has rings, and it's really far away. That's pretty much because I'm kind of a scientific guy. I'm kind of an expert. That's my official stance on Saturn. I'm talking about the car company, Saturn. Now, I never owned a Saturn. I don't think I even know anybody that owned a Saturn. But after just doing a 3,000-mile road trip through six states, I can tell you that there are a ton of these cars still on the road. I was driving through Oregon, and somebody in a 15-year-old Saturn blows by me about 90 miles an hour. And I'm like, wow, that Saturn's still running, and it's going really fast. And then a couple hours later, the same guy blows by me at 90 miles an hour. And so I start looking for Saturn cars, and it turns out there's a bleep ton of these cars on the road. 
So I, it got me thinking about Saturn. And Saturn, what I remember of the company was they were pitched as a new kind of car company. And they were a sub, subdivision of General Motors. But the way that you bought the car and how the cars were made and the, the kind of styles. And, and Saturn didn't exactly set do gangbusters when they first came out. I mean, the, the brand lasted probably 10 years and then went away. But is it me or how many of you out there drive a Saturn? And what is it about these things? How can so many of these still be on the road? I was amazed. And Saturn made a bunch of really weird cars, all of which I saw on this trip. The little two-seat Roadster. They made the station wagons, which for whatever reason, I really love. I love the old 19 mid-90s Saturn station wagons. And so I would start to track these things down when we were parked on this trip whether it was in Durango or, you know, wherever. And I would see Saturns on the street and go look inside of them to see, like, how could they still be alive? What the hell is happening with that brand? How, why did it go away? Because I don't necessarily think of General Motors cars as cars that last a particularly long time. In fact, my experience with them has been that they're, I'm, they're in the shop all the time. I had a Chevy S10 Blazer that I put dual exhaust and uh, glass packs on, by the way, which was an adventure. Uh, four-wheel drive, and by 30,000 miles, it was done. In fact, I ran into a part uh, manufacturer, designer for GM at the time, and uh, just randomly, he asked what kind of car I drove, and I told him, and he said, "Is it?" he goes, how many miles on it? I said, 30,000. He goes, is it leaking oil yet? I said, what do you mean? Why would it, why would it leak oil? He goes, because I designed the parts for that car, and we designed them for 30,000 miles, because that's what the average buyer has that car for, and then they sell it. So we don't make cars, you know, we could design parts that would last for 250,000, but they're too expensive. So, and I was like, no way. And so I, I literally went home, looked, got down on my hands and knees in the driveway. And sure enough, my S10 was leaking oil and that car was in the shop nonstop. So anyway, if you know anything about Saturn and the secret sauce that they have for how their cars are still on the road, let us know. Cause I'm, 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 uh, I'm confused. All right. Point number four is the Fuji 50 megapixel, the Fuji R rangefinder. Please save me from myself. I keep thinking that this camera would be good for me, and here's why. So historically, when I do documentary projects, or when I did them in the past, I typically worked on projects that put me in a target-rich environment. So for example, Easter in Sicily. I didn't go to Sic Sicily in an off time where there was nothing happening. I went when Easter processions were all over the country. I would research a section of the country the smallest towns I could possibly find. I would research individual processions as to why they were the way they were, what groups they represented, why they were unique. And Sicily, the Easter processions are remarkable, and there's so many different cultures that live there, and each procession is completely specific to the small town and the small region. And so, but I put myself in a very target-rich environment. So all day long, I'm making pictures. Boom, 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 shooting, reloading, shooting, reload, reloading, like as mostly. And uh, what else? I work on the border. I go down when there's a protest or there's some event happening on the border. Now, the border is one of those places that you can run into interesting things pretty much any time. Um, and I've worked on the border from basically Brownsville, Texas to Tijuana. So I've been a lot of different places along the border. I find it fascinating. I really love the border, and I'll be going back down there this winter for sure. But my point is I'm putting myself in target-rich environments. However, things have changed. The projects that I'm working on now are very different than what I worked on before, and they are more of what I would describe as ethereal projects. They're based on a concept or an idea, and then I have to fill in the blanks. They're not based on an event. So that means there is much more time between images and much more distance between images. 
But where I get where I'm going, or when I get where I'm going, I want to make the best possible image I can. And having a file type, a file size that size with a rangefinder, because I'm so used to using those, would be very beneficial and very interesting for me to have a camera like that. And I just want a single lens. Whatever the 50 millimeter equivalent is, hopefully it's really small. That's all I want. I don't want a bunch of lenses. I just want a single lens and a single body, and I want to be able to go do these. So I have two new projects here in New Mexico that I'm not starting because I'm waiting until I figure, not, figure out whether or not I'm going to get one of these cameras. I do not want to spend $4,000 on a camera. I could if I wanted to. I just don't want to. Because again, I don't work as a photographer. These projects are just silly things that I think are interesting and different and they're fun and that's how I spend my free time. But for those of you out there, I know someone listening to this podcast has this camera or you're lusting after it like I am or you think I'm an idiot for wanting it. So let me know any of the above. They're all totally valid feedback. Okay, along the same lines, point number five is about just say no to pro. And what I mean is, uh, recently, I've been re- several people have reached out to me and said, I um, really want to go pro, really want to go pro. And my advice is do not go pro. There's no reason to go pro today. And I will use myself as an example. So I started as a professional photographer in the late 80s, and I worked through 2010. It was a Tuesday afternoon in 2010. I was sitting in my home office in Southern California, and I was staring at my computer, and I said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. I love photography but I do not want to be a photographer. And I deleted, right then, I deleted my email account, my main email address for my business and studio, just on the spot. Boom, deleted, gone. My wife was sitting behind me, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm done. I'm not a photographer anymore. I'm moving to Santa Fe, and I'm going to change my career. And my wife, being my wife, she goes, okay. And that was it. And that was our entire discussion of me doing this. And... What happened over the next year was very peculiar and surprising, which was, well, it's actually lasted a lot longer than a year, was friends' refusal to identify me with anything other than being a photographer. So we would be in mixed company, and someone would say, what do you do? And I would say, I work for a publishing platform. And my friends would jump in and say, no, 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 no. He's, he, no, he doesn't. He's a photographer. And I would say, no, I'm not. I don't take assignments. I don't work. I don't make my living with it anymore. I'm not calling myself a photographer. That's sacred ground to me. If you make your living full-time as a photographer, yeah, you can use that title. If you don't, don't use it because you're not. You're doing something else. You work for the power company or you're a lawyer or whatever. There's nothing wrong with the power company. There's nothing wrong with the lawyer. In fact, they're probably a hell of a lot more useful than being a photographer. So I said, look, I'm walking away. Now, what happens when you do that? is that photography starts to, the the crust that's developed on the top starts to break away. And what re-emerges is the feeling and the thrill and the images that you were making before it became a career. And you start to realize, oh my God, this is way better. This is what I got into photography to do. I didn't get into photography to shoot environmental portraits for an editorial client. I didn't get into photography to shoot events for some crazy event planner. No, I got in because I wanted to make my own pictures. So all of a sudden, after all those years, I'm left to my own devices, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I don't have to think like someone who's trying to make a living with it. I can think as someone who's trying to make the most interesting, self-fulfilling images I can. And that's what happened. And I started to build bodies of work. And then something really funny happened, is that clients 
started to see those images. And I started to get offers to do jobs and shoots that were far better than anything I had while I was a photographer. And most importantly, and write this down, or record this, or record it and write it down, and whisper it to a friend, and then make a poster or a t-shirt. I had 100% control, and I had the ability to say no. And that potentially, that is the single most important tool in your arsenal, is to say no. Does this job work for me? No. Is this a lame idea? Yes. Am I going to do this? No. And suddenly, people were coming and saying, hey, wow, this work you're doing, you think you could maybe do something like that for us? And I had the ability to say, yes, I could, but it's going to cost you X amount and it's going to take X amount of time. And then there's no negotiation. If you want me to do that, wonderful. And if you don't, bye, don't need to do it. It was so liberating and so revolutionary to me that I have been doing whatever I can to tell people from that point on, I'm not really sure what the benefit of being a quote-unquote professional photographer is now. The respect level for the industry is at all-time lows. In fact, one of the, the best jobs I've had since I quit, the person who hired me said, as we were walking into the first meeting, whatever you do, do not identify yourself as a photographer. And I said, one, I would never do that anymore. And two, why are you saying that? And he said, because they have absolutely no respect for your industry. So that tells you everything you need to know. Now, the industry of photography will tell you that I am crazy or that I am bitter or that I am some, somehow jaded in all this. And they're true. They're right. I am jaded and bitter about a million things in life, but this is not one of those. It is so much better on the outside. And I can say the same thing about social media. When I deleted seven networks six years ago, it took about two weeks of detox, but after the detox wore off, I was like, oh my God, life without that idiotic device in my hand all day long and dealing with idiotic comments and likes and feeling, oh my God, is, are people going to like this that I'm putting up there? Am I going to get enough likes? And you realize two weeks later, you look back on your life and you go, how idiotic was I to even be a part of that? So anyway, my advice to you, if you're thinking of going pro, don't. My advice to you is to take every ounce of free time and go make the best possible work that you can make. Because here's the thing. It is so easy to think someone else's thoughts about photography. That's what I said earlier. 99.9% .9 of what I see is junk because it's a copy of a copy of a copy. I can look through people's essays and go, I know why you shot this. You shot this because so-and-so had success with a similar body of work a year ago and you're copying them. And again, that is the vast majority of what's happening in the photo industry. The, the original work comes from original thought. And having your own thoughts is incredibly difficult. It takes disconnect. It takes really uncomfortable moments of being alone and facing the, those noises and thoughts that are in your head, nobody else's. You know, it's why I don't, I'm so glad I don't go on Instagram anymore because Instagram has just confined everybody into the same box. And you, you hear people, their speech patterns are the same. Their clothes are the same. Their photographs are the same. I just saw 10,000 of these people up on the mountain blocking traffic, all wearing the same little costumes with the lackey. It's always some lackey dude taking pictures for some woman in a straw hat. And you're like, God, there's like 500 of you in a row. It's the same outfit and the same lackey taking pictures. It's very strange. So don't go pro. Just make your work. And then you're on your terms and you have the power and you can say no and you can do everything you want or don't want to do with that work. By the way, that point I think was a really good one. That was very valid. Okay, the next point, point number six, is 
I need some feedback on my YouTube films. So I started some YouTube films. Actually, I don't need feedback on the YouTube films. I was just kidding. I did start YouTube films, but I'm using YouTube to learn how to make films, but I don't care who sees them. I don't care how many subscriptions. I don't care how many likes. Uh, if you do comment on them, I try to write back if it's a legitimate comment. And by the way, I love the trolls on YouTube. It is potentially one of the best things in all of the internet are YouTube comments. They are absolutely insanely good. And the worse they are, the more I like them. So a troll doesn't work on me because I read what they say. And I'm like, that's actually really funny. And I would have probably written that if I was a troll. So anyway, uh, I am on YouTube now. So uh, I guess that is social media in a way. But when it, you consider how long it takes me to want to make one of these films and the fact that I'm not asking you for a subscription or a like, it has absolutely – at this point, it has no, no bearing on my life whatsoever other than I think I am getting slightly better at making films. Oh, I figured out how to, how to make a, a cut and a ripple delete. So any of you who know who cut film all day, I just figured that out. I was doing it the long way until like two days ago. So yes, you can feel sorry for me because it was horrible. Anyway, I'm getting there. Last thing I want to talk about today is re-gearing my Toyota Tacoma. I wrote a post about it today. Uh, for any of you out there who bought a third-gen Toyota Tacoma with an automatic transmission, um, it's a dog, and it's horrible on the highway. It shifts nonstop between fourth and fifth gear. By the way, it has a sixth gear that you'll never see or, ye or even need. It, your sixth gear could fall off, and you would never know because the truck is never in sixth gear. So it bounces from five to four, five to four, five to four all the time. And when you live at elevation... In the mountains like I do, and there's hills, and you've modified the truck, and you have weight in the back and everything else, it makes it a million times worse. And I literally was driving this truck over to the dealership to sell it. I was going to get in the car and drive over and sell it, and I went on YouTube, and I thought, I know I'm not alone. And sure enough, there's you know a 1,000 people complaining about – well, there's a lot more than that – complaining about this. So I figured out a way around it, a solution, got my truck re-geared from 390s to 488s, and it's night and day. Now, having said that, I live at 7,000 feet, and every car you drive feels like a dog at 7,000 feet, and then you go up to 10,000 in the mountains, and it feels even doggier, and then you throw in you know, weight in the back with your camping gear and your bikes and your fishing gear and your cameras and everything else, and you know, I'm not expecting a Formula One race car here. I'm just expecting to be able to hold fifth or sixth gear on the highway without th running at 3,500 RPMs and getting 12 miles a gallon. Having said that, there is a van in my future, in my very, very near future, and I am so excited about getting a van. And trust me, I am not doing van life. That is the biggest bunch of SHIT I've ever seen in my life. And on this road trip, I ran into van life people all over, and I would turn and run as, as soon as I saw them. I cannot handle that phony subculture that's van life. Not to say that everybody in a van is evil, but man, the hipster crowd that's in the vans are evil, I think. Because it's kind of, it's phony. It's like everything else. It just is so phony that you can see right through it. And then, of course, you know, the same person will say, oh, van life's amazing. And then they'll get all these followers. And then they'll go, that's it. I'm quitting. And they'll do a fake film about quitting. And then they'll be like, oh, I'm back. And then I have the dog. And you got to have the straw hat. The straw hat, I think, is the key to the entire Instagram model of life is you got to have a straw hat. I don't have a, I, I take that back. I do have a straw hat. It's in my truck, but I hardly ever wear it. You've seen it in one of my YouTube films lately because I was in Texas and it was 150,000 degrees and uh, the sun was baking my melon, so I wore my hat. So I am getting a van. It is a very simple, stripped down, nothing fancy, 
It will never be the focal point of my content creation. It will never be the focal point of my story. But it's very interesting because my wife and I had such a great time on this trip. We have so many places in the States we want to go. And we have family and friends scattered all over. And the van is interesting because it allows you to allows me to and she and I to work inside the van, which I can't really do in my truck, right? Unless I crawl in the back and I empty everything out of the bed and somehow find a way to keep it out of the elements and keep it locked up and then try to work in the back of my truck. So the van is, is enclosed. I can cook inside of it. I can stand up. I can work. There's two workstations in it. Um, it's, again, a very, very fancy lo-fi version of what's available in the van world. Uh, it's very simple and also very, very affordable in comparison to what's out there. So I've been researching this now for over a year, met the people at the company, know what we want to get. Um, we're going to sell one of our existing vehicles to get it. So we're not going to have an extra vehicle around and it's going to be a daily everyday driver as well for, for my wife. So, um, we're looking forward to that at some point anyway. So that is the episode for this week. I think we hit some very relevant topics. I think the political topic is a good one that we should that should make us think about certain things, regardless of what party or angle that you're with. It doesn't matter. I mean, if we can't honestly agree that both of our parties are in, are a complete disaster, what can we agree on? There's just too much evidence, you know, for us to deny this. Okay, and then we had we talked about the Fuji 50 milli, 50 megapixel rangefinder, which you know I need to have. And uh, I think that pro or not pro, I think that was a really good, a good point as well. So anyway, if there's any topics that you want me to talk about, or in fact, if there's anyone at all even listening to this podcast, that's a miracle in itself. But I appreciate you tuning in, and uh, I am making a list for next week. If I have time, I'm actually moving next week again. So uh, times are tight, and I've got an absolute mountain of blurb work to do, and the zine collaboration with Beyond Clothing AG23 is going, uh, moving forward. I'm sending content to the designer this coming week. So the first issue of that will be printed sometime in November or December. And we have three issues budgeted for 2020. So next week, I'm going to do a post specifically about AG for those of you who don't know what it is. Because the submission portal at ag23mag.com is open, anyone can submit. So if you've got a story, if you've got something you need to say, a story that you think is important, if you're trying to promote understanding through art and dialogue, if you have something that you think uh, the rest of the world should see, then send it. Because if we like it, there's only two of us who decide what goes in. If we like it, we'll run it. And that will go out to 2,000 people in printed form. And then there is a website at your disposal to promote whatever it is you feel you need to promote with that particular story. So again, it's open, ag23mag.com. There's a submission portal light it up and send stuff. And also we are working on a multitude of other aspects of this project, which will hopefully make it even better for contributors in the near future. That's all I'm going to say for now. So thanks for tuning in and I'll hit you, see you next week.